Not Your Average Mother Runner podcast. My name is Lisa, and this is not just a podcast about running. This is a podcast to empower women through fitness and health and everything in between. Because let's be honest, ladies, this journey could suck if we don't get our shit together. Welcome back to Not Your Average Mother Runner podcast. I am your host, Lisa. I want to thank everyone for the amazing feedback I've been getting. Um, I'm just, again, overwhelmed by it and humbled by it. But don't forget to share that love and rate the podcast and leave a comment on iTunes. And also, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Spotify because people keep asking me, you know, when is your episode going to drop? So if you subscribe, you'll be notified when my episodes come in. So I am really excited today. Uh, today's guest is an amazing athlete. Uh, she is a marathoner, a triathlete, a British weightlifting level two coach, and a precision nutrition level two certified coach. She has coached over 200 online clients to getting leaner and stronger, and she specializes in coaching master's level athletes to the best athletic performance of their lives by taking their nutrition to the next level, which is why I brought her on. Uh, <laughs> she, she, she is from Norwich, England, and her company is Endure Stronger. Welcome, Sam McIntosh. Hi, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so glad you're here. You know, obviously there's a five five hour difference, so you're you're already well into the day, and I just woke up. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Still drinking coffee though. So, well, hey, so am I. <laughs> so, can you just briefly discuss your background story? It's kind of like I didn't. I never tried to get where I am right now, as in like as an online strength and nutrition coach for sure, because. Um, my so if I go back to when I was when I was a kid I always played uh, football or, or soccer as you call it in the in the US and um because that's that's pretty much the sport here um so here in the UK anyway so so I grew up playing that I was always kind of a tomboy and um I got asked as a kid sort of to go to quite a high level with it but I, I didn't really I kind of stopped doing it when I was um a teenager I guess I got caught up in like teenager stuff mm-hmm. regardless of like, in high school and that sort of thing and in the UK they don't have very good um athletic programs in the in high schools especially not for girls oh. so um I kind of fell out of the habit of doing it and then I got back into it when I when I went to university so I played football and uh, rugby and then to be honest drinking was my main sport at university <laughs> and and sort of afterwards so I became kind of I was always fairly active as a child and I used to run for fitness when I was um playing for football teams and rugby teams and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Um, but I never really strength trained. I say never really, I, I, I didn't do it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until I started playing rugby when I was, I think when I was about 24, 25. And there was a really good rugby player on my team called Heather, who was from Canada. And she played rugby for her university at quite a high level. And uh, Canada has this weird, um, like they have very good women's rugby scene, all of their uh, female rugby teams are really good so she she was the one who actually took me into the gym and showed me how to strength train so I remember going in there and she taught me how to squat and bench press and deadlift and along the way while I was trying to find a way to get a uh, coach doing that 
I uh, joined a CrossFit gym, one of the first CrossFit gyms in the UK, um, CrossFit Reading, and kind of fell into um, powerlifting there, which is mm-hmm. squat, bench press, and deadlift. I mean, I loved it. As soon as Heather showed me how to do it, I was like, okay, this is really cool. I really like it. Um, so there was a powerlifting coach there, a really good one called Chet Majaria. And he said, you know, you've got a good deadlift. It's, um, you seem pretty strong. I think you could probably, um, compete nationally. I'll coach you. So, um, so I, I kind of did that for a bit and then, um, moved to Olympic weightlifting, which mm-hmm. is, um, more dynamic sort of, um, snatching cleaner jerks type movements and, did it? That was the most serious I think I've done anything. I did Olympic weightlifting and became very strength sort of oriented. Mm-hmm. And there was a good two years where I was like actively at a super lean body weight to try and compete in my weight class. Um, but I think I kind of got burnt out with it, really. Um, and along the way, like when I sort of drifted away from it and went back to university to do my master's, I kind of did a bit of everything. And then yeah, so, sort of along the way, because I learned a lot about nutrition and about strength training mm-hmm. when I was doing Olympic weightlifting quite seriously, I le- obviously learned a lot about it and then thought, okay, I'll, I'll, I think I can coach this. I think, think I can be pretty cool. And I really liked the CrossFit community that was a part of in Norwich. So I became their barbell weightlifting coach and then got certified through Precision Nutrition. And it kind of happened mm-hmm. organically. Like I never, um, like, you know, drew my line in the sand and said, this is what I want to do and yeah. make a career out of it. It just happened. Right. So yeah, yeah. it's Who, not a very, it's not a very co- coherent origin story, but it just kind of unraveled. I don't think anyone has one. <laughs> yeah. I think you're right. On that. I think you're right on that. Um, so how did you get into the uh, endorse stronger? How, I mean, it's, how did that all happen? Well, it's, it's funny because Olympic weightlifting and, and actually CrossFit um, as a sport, they're very focused on um, the quality of movement and how flexible you are. Like, do you have a mobile body? Do you have a strong body? Is it resilient as well as being able to run? Mm-hmm. Um, I've always loved being able to run. I've always, like I said, I've always done it. And I've always been able to go out the door and run three or four miles. There's a stress reliever and things like that. As I sort of fell back into running um, when I was, I think I was about 29 or 30. And I was like, Oh, actually, yeah, I really, really like this. And I joined a club and, um, triangular, the local triathlon club when I was training, um, for Olympic distance triathlons, I was astounded that the people there didn't do any strength training and didn't have any sort of concerns about how flexible and mobile they are and how generally fit they were. Mm-hmm. So coming from, as I say, Olympic weightlifting, actually, I mean, you're putting like 225 pounds as a woman over your head very mm-hmm. quickly you'd think that it has a really high injury rate and it just it doesn't because they focus on quality of movement if you look at the guys that do it on a really high level like um you know the russians the chinese guys mm-hmm. they take kids when they're four and teach them the movement and teach right. them how to move without weight before they go up to such you know astronomical weight so the injury rate for running is actually higher than than that, sports like that absolutely Even than sports like sports like rugby so really talking to these people and going oh my god you don't know how to strength train you don't know how to stretch your body you don't basically know how to bulletproof it against injury and you're wondering why you know you're, you're spending months out of your year injured so endure stronger is yeah i tried to sort of be self-explanatory with the name it, it kind of was born out of like runners need to strength train and it's it's really easy i can show you how um, and we started offering online coaching programs for people to do around their running. So we were always very clear, like we don't program running, like you've, 
got a running club or a coach that can program you to get aerobically fit. But uh, Laura, my partner and I, she's a physiotherapist. Um, we just designed simple body weight and like super simple dumbbell and resistance band workouts to be done two or three times a week. Um, and we got really good feedback on it. So we decided to sort of run with it. That is, um, that's awesome. And everything that you're saying, I can uh, relate to, <laughs> especially with the runners. Um, so let's just step back a little bit and talk about power lifting. Can you explain, first of all, to the listeners what that is? Because I think when you say power lifting and, you know, just lifting at the gym, sure. uh, what, what's the difference? So I think, yeah, powerlifting is a, is a competitive sport. And it, it consists of three lifts. So there's the squat. A lot of people um, know that. So they, it, it always um, involves a barbell. So you have the squat where you put the barbell on the back of your head, go down, squat below parallel so the hip creases below the knees and back up. It's very simple. It's one lift. Um, and then the next is the bench press, which probably that's what people are going to be the most familiar with, where you lie on a bench, you take the barbell to your chest, and then you, you press it out. And the second one is a deadlift where this one's got a super bad rap for hurting people's backs mm -hmm. where um, you literally take the, the, the barbell from the ground, brace um, your spine, hopefully, and um, deadlift the weight up um, to a standing position. And it's your combined total of those three lifts, single lifts in competition times by a coefficient related to your body weight that places you in the competition. So first, second, third, and you can win your weight class or you can win overall based on how strong you are. That's a super, super basic explanation of powerlifting. And, and these are like explosive moves. Y yeah, they are. I mean, I think explosive, if you watch it at a really high level, people are lifting some serious weight. Like you're mm -hmm. talking women who weigh like a hundred pounds squatting like 225, 250, you it's know, crazy. very, very strong. Um, especially on the female side of things, on the guy's side of things, you'll see guys, you know, deadlifting absolutely crazy amounts like there's the strong man floor he just um deadlifted 501 kilograms i think so over a thousand pounds um you see guys doing not far off that like 800 pounds that sort of thing um and it's explosive for sure definitely a power is what's called power lifting power mm -hmm. strength sport but um because they're lifting so much weight it doesn't necessarily happen quickly see what i mean so they'll go down into the bottom of the squat and then they'll sort of struggle bust it back up Right. So um, I think what when people see body weight squats, you see see sort of more bodybuilding like style reps of like twelve reps. They're just going down and up. And right. Kind of, right. It's kind of easy. But with powerlifting, it's definitely it's the maximum weight that they can manage in competition. So it's, it doesn't necessarily happen fast. Okay. And how long were you doing that for? Mm. Not um, about two years, I think. And I won um, the, the weight class in uh, the Welsh Open. I competed uh, once or twice. But I was I mainly just really liked the training and having something to focus on. But it was um, I was definitely yeah, I was super strong and I had had my fair share. I had an injury actually um, doing it, so um, that's why that was one of the reasons why why I stopped. Okay, <laughs> I was going to ask but you it that. Was, it was a total like not to put people off it. It was a total freak injury. So what happened is I was doing a maximal deadlift, and um, which and this is quite common, which might scare some people. And this is a quite very high weights um i kind of lost consciousness um at the top oh. and so the weight kind of because i was still holding the weight at the top of a deadlift it kind of dropped forward and as i dropped forward i kind of rocked back and knocked myself out 
Oh, wow. I was perfectly fine. But um, especially after the sort of history I have playing rugby, which is basically American football without any pads. Um, I've, I've been knocked <laughs> out a, couple, a few too many times, you know, so. Okay, just, so did you guys just hear that? She's pretty badass, <laughs> you know, to take that. Um, that's, that's crazy. You know, I do see the power lifters and I see how much weight. And I think that um, I know I used to date a power lifter and, you know, he got me into it a little bit, but it, it's no joke. I mean, it, it's... Uh, it can, first of all, you can't do it without having something in your stomach, first of all, because I did yeah. that one time. Yeah. And, right. And you're just doing like one rep. You could be doing one rep and you're just like, I feel like I just did like a freaking workout. I mean, it's, yeah, totally. it totally takes a toll over you. So, all right. So that's how you got into it and you it did it for, for a bit. But let's talk about the strength training with runners and and you're right because i'm going to tell you when i do my groups with running and we talk about strength training no one really talks about it to be honest with you and i'm going to say that when i got certified for my uh my running certification for a coach i asked the guy you know what about you know we talk about cross cross training i said what about strength training he goes no, no, no. Just just do what you got to do to keep those legs going, whatever it is that mimics the movement of the run. And I'm like, what? Oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm like, what? Yeah. So, you know, and you're right. You know, no one really talks about it. They, It's just straight up running. And I yeah. try to do, I love lifting. I love strength training. And like I said, when I heard your your the episode of of with you on being a guest on that podcast and you were talking my language I'm like yes thank you you know yeah but let's talk about why it's beneficial for a runner oh yeah I mean the in terms of in terms of the benefits there's a lot a lot a lot a lot to lift to to lift to list so um before like we go any further the powerlifting stories like that I say I say about the injuries and stuff that you see powerlifting is not lifting for the general person. Like when you see people, and if you look at powerlifting videos on YouTube, you'll see people vomit. You'll see people sniffing these weird smelling salts. You'll see them um, having nosebleeds. Mm -hmm. That is the very extreme end of what is an extreme sport, you know, Um, that I didn't get very much into because it was too extreme for me. And I can take quite a lot in that sort of way. Mm -hmm. Strength training is a totally different beast. You know, you're not lifting, um, especially for runners, you don't need to be doing it for one, three, five reps. You can if you want, and some people choose to do it that way, but it's usually about training and bulletproofing your body for a runner. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the the benefits for a runner, so going back to what your your coach said to you, you know, you just need to run more. That is just there's so much wrong with that on so many know, levels, but I'll start, I'll start off at the, um, at the start. So running is a, is a full body impact movement. And a lot of the time, especially when people have that viewpoint, they're just like, well, we've always run. We're evolved to run, right? Mm-hmm. We're born to run like the, like the name of that book. That's absolutely true. Humans were persistence hunters. We're supposed to work, you know, thir- we're supposed to walk 13 miles a day. They reckon in the, the ancestral times. And we, our strength as hunters was we were able to chase animals down. So leopards, antelopes, whatever we were chasing, they don't have the ability to sweat. So they might be able to out sprint us, but they can't carry on for very long without stopping. Humans can. So they can run 20, 30, 40 miles at a clip and used to, and they used to do it barefoot. Key point there. 
um, and they used to do it all the time. In our modern environment, we're not as born to run as we are. You know, we sit a lot, which shortens the hamstrings and turns the glutes off, which can lead to the feet turning out. If the glutes are turned off, we don't have that ability to power forward. We've lost a lot of our heritage and our bodies aren't as strong as they were and as suitable for running as they were. And part of um, the job of fixing that is to become more flexible. So maybe doing something like yoga or, um, you know, maybe even just a basic warm up before you run, which a lot of runners don't do. What strength (laughs) training can do to you once you've corrected and woken up, so you've activated those, those muscles, through a proper warming up, through dynamic stretching and things like that, is strength training can bulletproof your body, especially over long distances. So it increases the strength of the things that are powering your running. So your muscles and your tendons and your ligaments. You know, your your ligaments are incredibly strong as they are. That's true. Your Achilles tendon, for example, you could suspend a small car. They're incredibly strong, yes. But in terms of um, how well you can recruit them, especially your muscles, that can be tremendously improved with strength training. So for a runner who neglects strength training, yes, they're running all the time, but unless they're running perfectly, which because um, a lot of muscles aren't activated or they're actively shortened, and that goes for tendons and ligaments too, they're running with improper form. And so they're loading parts of their body that aren't designed for that much load, if that makes sense. So we're supposed to work as an all-in-one unit of activated muscles. If you are sitting all the time, there's loads of those muscles are turned off. So the impact from a sport like running is going on one particular place over and over. And that place is not designed for that much pressure over and over. When I say that place, I'm usually talking about your foot, your knee, um, or your lower back, which is where where it usually happens. Strength training can go to some way to compensate for that overloading. It's better to, to learn how to move properly. But it's real thing. And what really gets runners attention when I talk about it is that it teaches you how to recruit muscle fibers more effectively. Do you see what I mean? Strength training teaches your your muscles to be powerful, explosive, or long running and and enduring when you need them to be. Right. So that's kind of a long-winded answer. It's basically, I always say it as this, no one comes to the end of a marathon out of breath. They're never, you know, like you are at the end of a 5k you're in pain because you're you've pushed your muscles your tendons your ligaments your body into overuse and that's not a aerobic an aerobic issue that is a strength issue yeah so if you make your muscles less prone to fatigue by over fatiguing them with strength training with especially with certain types of movements you will train your body to deal with that better does that make sense yes and i hope everyone's listening to this (laughs) Because that is exactly what I, I've been told. But you said something, I'll tell you, uh, you said something about the barefoot. And I don't know where you were going with that, but they talk about, you know, the type of shoes that we wear yeah. and how it actually hinders. I heard that it may hinder uh, because of the way that the, the lift on the sneaker. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not meant to have that lift. Um, it actually for it, ha- it actually has us running in a in a certain manner that we shouldn't be running. What is your take on that? I think that, like a lot of things in the world today, people enjoy um, going on one side of an argument and digging their heels in and being and pointing the finger and being righteous at everyone and saying they're wrong. Where really the 
the answer lies kind of in the middle and both sides are kind of right. Mm -hmm. So you have um, the barefoot movement on one side who say, um, and they're correct, that when humans, um, ancestral humans used to run, they did it barefoot. Mm -hmm. And by not running barefoot, we're turning off a lot of nerves, um, what's called proprioceptive nerves in the bottom of our feet. And they're basically um, asleep in, in the shoes that we wear because they're so cushioned. And we need our feet to be alive and not activated, as I said, and knowing what's going on. That's all true. Mm-hmm. That, that is all true. And I do agree with that. What is also the case is that we live in a modern environment that is not, you know, savannah fields full of grass. <laughs> it's cement mm-hmm. for the most part. Pavement. You know, you said you were in upstate New York. You want to run through New York City barefoot? You're going to need a tetanus shot, right? So, so it's not really, it's not really, it's not really feasible for us to run around barefoot, and it's not really the best as well. the The impact of hitting cement barefoot, even in a barefoot minimalist shoe, is a lot. Yeah. So, um, they're they're absolutely right. Overly cushioned shoes, especially uh, people who walk around in them in their day to day life, not good. Completely turns off your foot, and um when it's turned off, it's not aware of what's going on. So if it's being jostled around in a foot like this, and especially if you don't have strong tendons, strong muscles to stabilize it, you are going to, you know, subject yourself probably to a significant injury down the line. On the other side of it, you have the shoe companies who say, you know, people need motion control. They need this. They, they say, you know, there's cement out there. You need to, to protect your foot against a modern environment. And a lot of them as well are just like, you know, you'll run faster, you'll do this, you'll do that. A lot of research has gone into it. The answer is kind of in the middle of it. So I believe um, that people should walk around day-to-day life most of the time in a minimalist slash barefoot shoe. Not not barefoot. Right. I don't think that's necessary. I think uh, something like Vivo Barefoot or Vibrams, if you can deal with the kooky design, you know, with the finger pose and stuff. Yeah. If you're walking around like that, then you're waking up the soles of your feet. You're, you're, you know, building the stabilizing muscles in your tendons and doing a lot to wake up the bottoms of your feet. Um, if you can learn and progressively move into um, doing a, a, a portion of your training barefoot in barefoot minimalist shoes, that's what I do. Mm-hmm. So I do at least two training runs a week in barefoot shoes. And I progressed up to that. Um, from from running shoes a lot lot of what people do is they go from running shoe to barefoot shoe and then wonder why they can't walk right right you're actually risking injury by making that leap it's better to increase the percentage of your volume of training by 10 percent each week and just Mm -hmm. see how you go but yeah i do a portion of my training in barefoot and i walk around in barefoot shoes all the time Wow! like i don't wear anything else i do not wear my running trainers as casual use i do not strength training them i only wear them for running so it's kind of in the middle, if that yeah. makes sense. So no, yes, it does. a lot of people are like spending all their time in running shoes and they're, you know, they're basically foot coffins. So they turn your feet off and then they're expecting their feet to act how they want to and protect them from injury when, um, when they go out running and it's just, it's just not the case. But if you, if you, if you use barefoot shoes, if you use them in the training, you have to do it, um, progressively. And I don't think personally, that running in barefoot shoes all the time. I I tried to do all my bare, training in barefoot shoes. I just didn't really like it. Mm. Like I live in an in an estate where there's loads of cement around. It's really tough. Yeah, on your feet. And I didn't really see a reason why. You know, I didn't think that there was a big injury risk. Laura, my partner, she's a physiotherapist. She was like, "There's no injury risk if you run a little bit in your running shoes." So 
an 18 mile run in my running shoes and I'll do like a 10 K in barefoot shoes. It's made me a lot stronger as a runner using barefoot shoes as a tool rather than saying you must do that all the time. That's the way humans were born to run. Right. Wow. That makes a lot of sense. And I did not realize that, but that makes total sense. And I never even thought about putting that. I I wear shoes that need to be cushioned heavily, but most of the time I'm walking around barefoot and I do strength training barefoot, but that makes a lot of sense. Thanks. Thanks a lot. I didn't even I didn't realize that waking up the foot and being in little coffins that makes a lot of yeah. sense. There's a guy called um there's a guy called Kelly Starrett. He's a physical therapist and he wrote a book called Ready to Run, um, which is great, actually. It's a it's a really cool little book. And he has like some mobility and flexibility standards in there. And he advocates a, a zero drop shoe. So a wow. not a cushion shoe, like a like a just a completely flat one. Yeah. Um, which like I say, I'm kind of in two minds about, but he has a good sort of how you can progress to that type of shoe that that I followed. And I think one thing that I don't agree with about running sneakers um, and how they're distributed, I would say, in running stores is that if you have a runner who overly pronates, mm-hmm. so this is this is a lot of runners on the outsides or the insides of their feet, right? That shows a movement fault that is to do with in- inactive muscles. That shouldn't be being fixed with a shoe. That should be being fixed at its root. So what's happening with their glutes? Are their hamstrings shortened? Why is their leg swinging like that? Why is their foot falling like that? Rather than just saying, we're just going to give you the super padded shoe and you know go out there and run because they're going to get injured anyway. Yeah, The, the shoe's not going to stop that. It's the equivalent of putting a raw egg in a tea towel, mm-hmm. hitting it against a counter and saying, huh, that tea towel should have stopped the egg from breaking. It's not going to do it. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that, that's, that's what they all do when you go to the, yeah. the stores. They, they, they give you the shoe. In fact, you know, that's what I believed. Um, but this mm-hmm. is definitely a game changer and definitely something I want to put into my training because I do have a lot of, uh, I do pronate a lot. But with that being said, let's go back to the strength training. And how would that look like for someone who is, well, first of all, would it look different for someone who's training for like a 5k Mm. versus a half versus a full marathon does it differ yes the strength training um so it would be large for some for the sort of um the average runner it would be largely the same so if we're talking about an olympic level 5,000 meter competitor Mm -hmm. and an olympic level marathoner yes the strength training would be different as the 5,000 meter runner. Obviously it's a lot shorter. There's a lot more power speed muscle fibers that are needed for that type of effort. Mm-hmm. They're, they're running pretty much the whole thing at a nine out of 10, 10 out of 10 effort using um, their anaerobic system a lot. They would be focusing more on very short, sharp lifts, maybe on plyometric work. So jumping things that really recruit the power speed muscle fibers in, in your legs. Mm-hmm. Whereas a marathoner, as we say, it would be a lot of stability, a lot of core stability, a lot of repetitive strain prevention, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Like even though, you know, elite marathoners do them in just over two hours, which is absolutely crazy. And they're running for a lot of it. It would be a lot about making their body more resilient and strong for the marathoner. So, and it's worth saying as well that the elite marathoner, the way they run a marathon compared to an average marathoner. Um, is totally different. They they have they have built an ability to work at a 
extremely high percentage of their VO2 max mm-hmm. for a very long period of time. Whereas for you and me, when we run a marathon, we're running it as an aerobic effort. Right. You know, you can run it quite quickly. Um, and as people get quicker, they're running it at a higher percentage of the VO2 max. And that's something that they train. Right. But for the average runner, I would say it wouldn't look too different if I'm being completely honest. Oh, okay. It would be more about making sure that, especially for a beginner, using that that strength training window, maybe there's one or two hours a week to teach their body how to move in space. So when they lunge, is their knee tracking in? Is it tracking out? And once we get it tracking out nicely, we're going to load it a little bit. And about teaching the muscles how to fire the right fibers to get them through each effort without thinking about it, mm-hmm. about bulletproofing their body and generally just increasing their muscle and making them more a more resilient human being. From okay. my perspective, I would. If you had someone who came in to... And they were like, I really want to smash this 5K. Um, my time is 18 minutes. I want to get it down to 17 or 16. Yeah, maybe we'd do some more specific work. But other than that, it would be it would be maybe a little different, but not that different. Okay. And how would that look like? Are you thinking uh, more load, uh, more repetitive uh, mo- movements, uh, more mm-hmm. reps? Like, you know, you're saying that there's, a, there's a, some differences... But when mm. someone goes in the gym, you see the ones with the heavy loads, shorter mm. reps, and then you have the people who are like, you know, just really going fast with their reps. Is there a difference or what type of, what is a strength training program? What would that look like for someone who is training for, I don't know, a half marathon? It really depends. And that's going to be an annoying answer. But if it depends on that person's level of strength training. So the, if I was training for a half marathon and I approached a coach for a strength training program, I'm someone who has a lot of experience with um, advanced lifting, mm-hmm. uh, someone who's stronger than the average female my age and more flexible and more mobile than the average female runner my age. Um, not to sound braggy, but that's just, that's just the case. I'm not <laughs> the, I'm like way down there in terms of speed. So, so that's my <laughs> compensation. But in terms of what would a strength training program look like for the majority of people who I work with who are kind of in their 30s and their 40s and they just want to get faster and healthier and stronger? Mm-hmm. Um, you're looking at, we use what's called a reps in reserve model. So um, what I see a lot of people do, runners, should I say, when they attempt strength training by themselves, they they give me what they're doing right now and it's essentially a bodybuilding program. So mm-hmm. Um, 10 to 12 reps of bicep curls, um, like quarter squats, uh, leg press, and maybe if I'm lucky, like some split squats and some, maybe some lunges in there at like 10 to 12 reps at fairly easy weight. And like you say, they're just in the gym, like Mm -hmm, doing this. mm -hmm. And I'm like, yeah, that's not that's not really doing anything. It's better than nothing, but it's right. not really doing anything. A bodybuilder does, does high rep ranges or they're doing heavy weight to failure, which is what bodybuilders do. They literally lift until they cannot lift anymore. That is way too much intensity and volume for a runner. Just not necessary. Okay. If you do it because it's like, because you like it, that's, that's another story. But if you're adding that on top of your own training, that's too much. And then we have people who come in and they're using like five pound dumbbells, women as well. Mm-hmm. And um, they're kind of like, I don't know how else to describe it. They're pretty much doing nothing. 
Right. Like they're doing a cardio <laughs> workout kind of like yes. this. You yes, know. yes, yes. Um, or they or they run with weights weights in their hand. Yes. And that, that's strength. It's just like, no, that's that's just a cardio workout. That's, that's no right. <laughs> well, yeah, so what we use um, is a reps and reserve model. So there's the bodybuilding style reps is high reps to failure. And then you have the powerlifting style, which is um, five reps, three reps, one rep maxes. So going for, for max weight. I know some runners who do that and it's, it's definitely makes your body stronger, definitely helps you recruit um, the muscle fibers. But what we prefer to do is somewhere in the middle. So around six to eight reps of each exercise, usually with dumbbells mm-hmm. um, rather than barbells because of people's um, inexperience with lifting. And we say, right, you do this for a rep, so at least six reps. But when you finish your last rep, make sure that you've got at least two reps in reserve. So it's what we call an auto-regulation method. So a way for the person to manage their own fatigue. So instead of going to failure, they'll do an overhead press with dumbbells. So at least six. And then if they get to nine and they're just like, I can definitely do at least two more if I really tried, then they stop. That's the method that we use. So it teaches them to, as I say, self-regulate. And it also doesn't overload the body too much because the strength training is there to support the running. Right, right. For the most part with right. clients who come to us. So that's how it would look. Um, the reason we use dumbbells as opposed to a, a single barbell mm-hmm. is because each side of your body works just as hard. So what we find with a barbell, and this is true for everyone, is that they have a dominant side. Mm-hmm. So if they're overhead pressing a barbell, um, if they're lunging with a barbell in a front rack position or something like that, then one side will compensate for the other side. We mm-hmm. use dumbbells because if it's a single weight in each hand, both hand is working the same, roughly the same amount. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. Um, as far as the uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, uh, of all the strength training workouts, what's the one exercise or one workout, the movement that is most important for a runner and why? It's, it's very hard to choose and I would never program just one exercise for someone, but I would say, I've been asked this question before and I've always said a lunge, a walking oh. lunge, because um, there's, I've, I've written articles, there's an article I published with women's running about deadlifting and said, you know, it's really underrated exercise, builds an amazingly strong back, you know, and a lot of running is keeping yourself upright while mm-hmm. moving through space. So deadlifts are amazing, but lunges are great because they're a great um, diagnostic tool for a strength coach. Some people can't lunge properly mm-hmm. when they come to see me. Um, and they're just great for running. So when I say a lunge, I obviously mean kneeling forward. Mm-hmm. As, I, as I mentioned before, there's a lot of people say so this is the line of the center of mass in your body. The knee should track out this way. Okay. Towards this side of your body. What we find with a lot of people, especially if they've got inactive glutes or, um, or just poor inactivation in their legs in general, then their le- leg tracks inwards like mm-hmm. this because of a weakness. And um, usually these are the people that, ha- that get knee pain, hip flexor pain. So th- we, we have an immediate movement diagnosis there. And if you load the lunge, once someone does it properly, if you load it in that position, that will train the knee to always do that when that person runs. So if that person's got knee pain, it's because when they run over and over again, when their foot hits the ground, their, their knee is, is falling in. Right. And for people listening to this, the next time you're out running, look at the runner in front of you. If you did go out for a 5k, you will probably see, probably see someone whose foot falls inwards and their knee falls inwards as well. 
causes amazing amount of problems. The lunge fixes that. Not only that, but by kneeling down, you're activating what's called your hip flexors. So mm-hmm. in front of your pelvis, that's strengthening the hip flexors by dipping them down under load. Another great thing for running. Mm-hmm. As you rise up, your glutes are the main sort of one of the main drivers in bringing you up into a standing position. Another great muscle for running. Right. And the last thing is that in a lunge, and this is usually, as I say, a diagnostic tool, we see a lot of people fall forward as they, as they lunge forward instead of maintaining a straight back that shows back instability which will cause back pain when they run and mm-hmm. shows a really weak core which everything runs through your core mm-hmm. which again bad for running so right. if you train the lunge if you train someone to lunge with the knee tracking out with their torso straight and coming up instead of walking instead of leaning forward mm-hmm. as they as they're lunging if you can train them to do that and then load it for like four sets of six to eight reps using the reps in the reserve model that will make their running so much better damn sam <laughs> that that wow that all makes sense yeah it, it really makes sense and that's i didn't even think about that wow i don't even know what else to say about that <laughs> um, it's 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 definitely like i say um there's a great book by one of my friends rich blagrave he is the director of strength and conditioning at loughborough university in the uk and that's um, Loughborough University is in, is in the middle of um, the UK. It's very prestigious for sport and exercise science. Like uh, if basically their sports and exercise science program, if you want to study there for a degree, you have to be an elite level athlete to wow. even make the cut. Wow. Uh, he's the director of strength and conditioning for that. And he wrote a, a great book called um, Strength and Conditioning for Endurance Running. I've interviewed him on, on my own podcast before, and he's just like an absolute mine of information. He has a section in the book on the lunge on things to look for and, and things that you can, you can literally do it in a mirror and see. So if people were interested, yeah, that would be a great resource. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it's funny. I thought you were going to say something about the core. I mean, I really thought you were going to say, um, but it, it encompasses all that, that movement yeah. encompasses everything that as runners we need. So that totally makes a lot of sense. That's definitely a game changer for me. Let's now talk about nutrition for runners and, you know, does it differ for those who are on short runs, like a quick, you know, three miler or versus someone who's doing like half a marathon? Yeah, for sure. So what I see, um, the common mistakes that I see a lot of runners make is in when you get into the longer distances. Um, and it's usually that they just don't eat enough. Nine times out of 10 runners do not take on enough fuel when they run. With that said, like for a three mile run, um, I think that you don't need to take any on the run nutrition. Like I've, I, I did a, a sprint triathlon once and I saw this, the, the lady next to me, her bike was just packed with um, gels and, and carb drinks and things like that. So a sprint triathlon is, is very short. I mean, the elite people can do it on, in under an hour. Wow. Um, you just don't need to take on any nutrition for it. If you're competing at a high level, if anything under an hour, you don't need to take anything, you know, in my opinion, Okay. load up with some protein and carbs beforehand for sure, but not anything on the run. It's the same for a 5k. Um, and even a 10k, I would say you don't need to take any gels or, or anything like that on the run. In my opinion, as you get to the half marathon distance, and I was, I would say as a general rule, if you're running for longer than 60 minutes, you should be taking on some type of carbohydrate every 20 minutes after that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the actual, the exact amount um, varies by your body weight. Um, it doesn't necessarily vary very much by how fast you're running, which a lot of people are surprised by. So if you run a 12 minute mile um, and you're the same body weight as the person next to you running a seven minute mile, you don't need a lot more, or a lot less. That's not really what affects it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you definitely need to take on something every 20 minutes. And what I see is that um, on Facebook groups, people are like, you know, I'm, I'm marathon training. It's my first marathon. It's going really well. But just recently on runs, I'm starting to get really tired. And I usually chip in and, and hang around and sort of um, lurk about in these groups looking for people to give advice to because I see a lot of people doing this wrong. And I was like, did this by any chance start at around the eight mile mark? And they're like, yeah, how did you know that? Because your body's run out of glycogen. So, so it's <laughs> like, so basically there's, there's sugar that you store in your muscles called glycogen. Mm-hmm. You've got about an hour's worth in there that can be stored. You can't store any more than that. Once your body taps out of that, everything in your body will scream at you to stop because it's like, I don't have any more sugar to fuel the the movement of your muscles now. So obviously you have to get ahead of that and make sure that you've got sugar going in so it can start circling, circulating in your bloodstream. Otherwise you hit the wall and, uh, and running, you can continue to run, but it really sucks. Yeah. And that's why I didn't uh, finish my marathon. <laughs> yes. A lot of people, very easy to solve though. That's the good news. Yeah. And you know, it's funny because when I was training for it and I, I asked uh, uh, my doctor, I was like, you know, could you send me to a nutritionist to, to help me out on my runs? And nobody talks about it. Nobody no. really knows about running and nutrition. And, you know, she didn't really give me a lot of guidance. And I, yeah, 19 miles, I was done. I was yeah. done. I, I was dead. Um, yeah. And it really you was. A, you did a great job getting that far. <laughs> if, but if, yeah. it, was, it was just ridiculous. But that's the other reason why I got into the nutrition piece, because um, no one really talks about it with runners. They talk a lot about hydration and electrolytes and, yeah. you know, keeping that in. But they don't talk about the, the nutrition previous, you know, to running, during running and after. But with that being said, what do you think about running or what do you eat before you do the run, like the day before? Like, what are your thoughts about when people say, let's carb load before Mm -hmm. we do the long run? Do you, I hear different things about that. I mean, does it hold true? Does it help? What are your thoughts? I think it's, it's a very individual question. There are, uh, um, there is literature, um, that supports the carb load. Um, I, I don't think there's any literature that supports the two weeks out carb load that some people do. That's mm-hmm. just absolute rubbish. But in terms of the, the, the few days before increasing your carbohydrates to make sure that the glycogen in your muscles is, is fully topped off, certainly making sure that you're eating enough. If you go into a race, um, especially a long race in an underfed state, so maybe you've been busy with your kids or you've been working a lot and you just haven't eaten very much that's not a good way to go into it because you've got what's called accumulated fatigue so um i would say that i usually increase my athletes if they're gonna um run a half marathon certainly a marathon for the few days before the week leading in they're on certainly for as i say two to three days before they're on about 100 grams more carbs on those days just to make sure that we've got what we need there um in terms of just before a run you want like, and this is something to try in training, not on race day, Mm -hmm. but you want to make sure that you have a breakfast that is, um, 
high, uh, moderate in protein, high in carbohydrate and fairly low in fat because flat uh, fats, um, slows the absorption of other macronutrients. So if you have something that's super high in fat, not only will that probably cause you a bit of GI distress, but it takes a long time um, for your body to break through that and actually access the protein and carbs it will need for the run. So something, yeah, fairly low in fat, not going too crazy. Like I usually have like um, some high protein yogurt and some fruit um, something that's really easily digested. So white bread actually for me works great because, wow. um, because the, a lot of people are just like, well, brown's the way to go. Brown is higher in fiber, mm-hmm. white bread. And this is to its detriment. If it's for an inactive person, it hits your system pretty quickly. It has a high um, on the glycemic in- index. So I like to have that maybe with some some egg whites if I want something a little bit um, more substantial. And I find that with timing, you want to have it about an hour and a half before, but that can vary for different people. Some people get um, you know a cramp or a stitch if they eat two hours before and they need to eat three hours before. It's a, it's a lot about the experimentation that you want to do. Mm-hmm. But the general rule of, of increasing your carbs for a few days before a race, making sure you're definitely making sure you're not going in underfed, not eating any strange food the day before, mm-hmm. um, just, just to not risk any GI distress, and making sure that you're eating a breakfast that you've eaten before your long training run for the weeks leading up to the race and not trying anything different and thinking, oh, I'll try this. Don't do that right. on race day. It's right, just not worth right. it. So would you, what you just, just described for your breakfast, would you have that just for any type of run or is it just for a specific type of run? Before a long run, I will have okay. uh, something. So, so to put it, I'm, I'm, I weigh about probably 160 pounds, something like that. I, before I go out on a run, I make sure that my breakfast has about 30 grams of protein. So about two palmfuls. And um, if it's a long run, I'll have around 70 grams of carbs. So we're talking like, Four, that's the equivalent of like four slices of toast, something like that. And then after the run, I can have, if it's an 18 mile run, I'm having 120 grams of carbs afterwards to make sure that I replenish that because that's super important too. Yeah. So, so I, I just want to touch upon something because we're talking about nutrition for doing a run. And mm-hmm. I think what happens is that people get confused and even myself when you're doing weight loss. Yeah. You're thinking in your mind, and then, and this is why I didn't do the mar- I couldn't finish the marathon because I'm thinking in my mind. I don't want to eat too much because I want to sure. burn some fat. Yeah, but, I mean, so is it is it based on what our goal is? I mean, am I doing this run because I want to lose weight, or am I doing this run because I want to finish? Yeah, so I would say you should never race a race with the goal of I'm going to lose weight while I'm doing this. I want the calories burned so I can then do that. It should always be the performance of the race, getting through a race, especially like a marathon Mm -hmm. should be about, I need to eat enough to fuel this effort. I would hundred percent discourage trying to lose weight while you're marathon training. I don't think the two go well together at all. So it seems like they do logically, right? Because you're like, well, hold on a minute. If I'm doing like 40 miles week, 40 mile weeks, especially with like an 18 mile run on Sunday, look at your Garmin, you're just like, that's about 2000 calories. That's going to make weight loss really easy. It actually doesn't because you've burnt off those calories and basically put your body into a state of shock. Like, holy crap, that was mm-hmm. a big effort. Usually what we see is that hunger is upregulated and a lot of people actually gain weight in marathon training because they have what's called the licensing effect. So they're just like, well, I've just done that. That means I can go to that restaurant and I can eat as much as you want, as I want. Not really. 
Mm-hmm. Because what usually happens is that they get up in the morning, the runner, they run their 18 miles. Yes, they burn 2000 calories. I don't know about you, but after I do a long run and marathon training, I don't feel like doing anything for the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. It is, you have a shower, uh, I stretch a little bit, and then it is sofa for the rest of the day. So the rest of what we call your non-exercise activity is completely written off. Mm-hmm. So you don't do it. You don't move around. Like I don't even want to take my dogs for a walk after a long run. So yeah, you've burned 2000 calories, but the rest of the activity of, your, of a normal day is completely gone. So any sort of calorie deficit that you were in is kind of moderated by the fact that you do nothing afterwards. And then weight loss is usually pushed to the back of the thing because people are just like, well, I can have a pizza hut. I can have this. I can have that because 2000 calories. Wow. That's, that's a lot. And it kind of counteracts any weight loss efforts anyway. And also you're really, really hungry. Mm -hmm. So because you usually eat, especially if you're not eating mindfully, you'll just blow past all the calories you've burned and then some. I would say. Right. Yeah. That, that point aside, marathon training is hard, is, is extremely hard on your body, on your muscles, your bones, your joints. If you are sitting at a calorie deficit, even if you're doing it successfully, uh, you're depriving your body of resources that it needs to recover properly. And, um, you're not going to run the race very well and you're not going to feel very nice when you're doing it either. Yeah. And that's what happened, Sam, to me. (laughs) Yeah. It happens to a lot of people though. It seems like a great idea. A lot of, don't get me wrong, a lot of people lose weight in marathon training. Right. But I find those people usually don't approach it from the, okay, I've done that. So I can then eat this. And they're usually not trying to, it just sort of happens. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. I'm glad. Yeah. I, I, I needed to talk about that because like I said, when I was going through that training, nobody talked about it. And I'm yeah. like, you know, and then when I finally had the aha moment and, and was speaking to somebody, I'm like, oh my God, wow. Yeah. What, what the, the wrong way to do a, a training for a marathon. It was me. I was a model for that, but um, we didn't really talk about hydration, but if you could just briefly talk about, you know, I know they always say, you know, you should drink, uh, you know, first of all, let's talk about the different types of hydration. They talk about mm-hmm. that certain types of electrolytes. And I mean, what, what is your opinion in regards to electrolytes and in, in drinks when you're running? That again, like, like intra-race nutrition, runners don't take the, take enough of them. Mm-hmm. So, um, electrolytes are super important, um, to prevent what's called hyponatremia which is when um, what some marathon runners have done, and, and it can prove fatal in some circumstances, is they flood their body with water. And um, if you deprive a body of water, it dies really quickly. Mm-hmm. What a lot of people don't realize that if you deprive it of salt, so the, the, the main electrolyte in your body, it dies really quickly too. So if you flood your body with water and dilute the salt content of your body, it causes a condition called hyponatremia. Um, and it usually happens very, very quickly leads to organ failure it leads to death and there's been a couple of cases of this in the london marathon new york city marathon where people have just thought i should drink more i should drink more instead of listening to their thirst signals so there's that the thing with electrolytes um like race day nutrition is kind of dependent on the person's body weight and um maybe one other factor electrolytes are dependent on a on a lot of different factors so we're talking the heat of the day um will depend obviously on how much you sweat so how much electrolytes you'll lose um your body weight and um, your your genetics. So uh, some people just sweat a lot more than other people. There's some people that don't sweat at all. So my partner, Laura, we can be sitting in a sauna for 20 minutes 
the girl doesn't break a sweat. <laughs> Whereas like after, after two, two to three minutes, it is pouring off me. Right. So I, I start to bead with sweat as soon as I walk in there and she, and she, and she you know, doesn't, it, it's, it's, it's weird. I'm like, you've got no sweat in your body. There's something wrong with you, but it's, um, but it's different for different people. You know, I used to do a spin class next to a guy who would just have, he'd have to put towels around his bike. It would just pour off him. Um, and that's all individual factors that should take up, um, what, what electrolytes you consume in terms of, um, amounts, there's this great company that I met at a running show called precision hydration. They're really small. They're based in the UK and they have this, what's called a free hydration test. Mm-hmm. And it just asks you a base, couple of basic, simple questions and it's free. And they, um, say like, you know, what would you describe your sweat amount as? What's the temperature that you usually run in? How far do you usually run? Or do you even run at all? Do you cycle and swim as well? Um, would you say you sweat a lot? You know, one of the guys who did my sweat test for me, he said, do you have dogs? And I said, yeah. And he said, do they lick you a lot after you're done running? And I'm like, uh, actually, yeah, they do. And they don't do it with Laura. The reason they don't do it with Laura is because she doesn't sweat as much. So <laughs> I taste delicious and salty because I've got a lot of sweat on me. And they don't do it with Laura because she doesn't. So um, yes. And you can do a prick sweat test, but this, this online test, it takes about five minutes and they'll say, actually your electrolyte levels are probably around this. And obviously they have the natural lead into their own products, but you can find out what sort of milligrams of electrolytes you might need on an individual level for that. But again, like I say, a lot of runners don't take electrolytes or if they do take them, they don't take enough. So I know I've had runners come to me who are just like, I drink electrolytes and okay. So they're going out for a 20 mile run in you know 90 to 100 degree heat and they're just like yeah i I had electrolytes and they show me a water bottle that's like a liter and they've got like a tiny tab of and i'm like (laughs) that's nowhere near gonna replace the what you've lost in the sweat and that run and the other mistake i think that's made a lot by a lot of people is they don't preload their hydration so you know like we we preload carbohydrates before races that's quite common knowledge it's it's really good practice to preload your body with electrolytes before especially what, what might be a hot race or a long, uh, a long run. Um, so what I, and the guys at precision hydration were great for this. They, they taught, they got me in the habit of preloading with quite a high concentration of electrolytes the night before, um, a long run. And I, I found I felt so much better on the actual run. I actually managed to do 15 miles on a treadmill here um, when the lockdown was happening Wow! and usually on a treadmill, I'd, I guess, cause you've got no breeze. I'd yeah. like the sweat would be crazy. I've never managed to do that far on a treadmill. I think probably because I just sweat so much, but um, because I was preloading with hydration and I had some, some tabs on hand, I, I managed to get through it. It wasn't the best experience of my life, like because it's 14 miles on a treadmill. Yeah. But it, was, it was definitely better, I would say. Wow. Yeah. Um, I call it the hamster wheel, Sam. Um, yeah. Oh, I hate it. <laughs> like, I really don't mind. I don't mind doing sprints, like if it's broken up and I've got like that mental break. Right. But uh, a distance run on a treadmill. Yeah, especially in front of a mirror where you can see uh, how red and sweaty you are. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, right. You were talking about the sweat and being a, a heavy sweater, which mm-hmm. I, I talk about that with some of the runners. And for me, I get a film of mm. salt yeah. on my face. So, what would you say that means? Definitely that you're that you've probably got a high concentration of salt in your sweat. Mm-hmm. So, and, and again, that's a different, that's different for each person. Some people sweat more water relative to salt, um, but probably that you need a higher concentration electrolyte. Do you see what I mean? So yep. there's some people, there's some runners that I've had, um, 
especially ultra races, you know, where sweat runs and then dries. Mm -hmm. And they say that they, they literally brush their hand and salt is like dusting off of it. That's probably quite a high concentration with sweat, but that will happen to everyone past a certain point. I remember like I've done hundred mile bike rides and then I've sat and, you know, had a beer and a burger afterwards and I've gotten up from the table <laughs> and I've just gone like that. And it's just like, like sweat salt, like everywhere. <laughs> so, yeah. It's, um, it's, it's an interesting subject. And yet I think even on the, on the recommendations for electrolytes that are sold to runners, mm-hmm. like they don't recommend nearly enough because right. it, it would look kind of weird to say, like there'd be so many different situations, like on a 120 mile bike ride, you should probably take six tabs of this rather than the recommended two, because it's just different for each, each person. So it's definitely doing it worth doing a, a bit of poking around yeah. and seeing Ex- what works for you. Experimenting. Um, yeah. I-, I could talk with you for hours about this and I don't want to, I mean, I, I, this is, this is a, I, I say running is my Prozac cause I need it for my mental health. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if I don't do it, my daughter calls me uh, not a good mommy. Um, <laughs> so, so just two more questions. Do you think that there is an age limit to start running? And I say this because I was, uh, and I, you know, that's why I'm not your average mother runner because I didn't start running until my 30s. I was never a runner prior. So mm-hmm. what, is, what are your thoughts about that? If you had someone come to you who's in their 30s or maybe even their 40s, Mm-hmm. Um, and said they want to start running. What What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. Like even if someone came to me in their 60s, 70s, you know, it. like I am not, as a coach, I'm very against ever saying to anyone that they can't do something. Um, I, I, there may be some people who come to me and say, if, you know, if a 70-year-old came to me and said, I want to qualify for the next Olympics, I would still say, okay, <laughs> let's uh let's try that together right you know because it's i don't think it's a coach's job to to place boundaries of any kind of any on anyone i would say as you get older there are certain considerations that you need to make later and later as you start so especially with women um if they're pre or perimenopausal Mm -hmm. their estrogen levels are going to be lower than than women in their 20s or 30s and when estrogen um, levels go down that can ha- that has an effect on what's called your bone density so how mm-hmm. strong your bones are so um you usually find that uh with perimenopausal women sometimes have problems with osteoporosis so um brittle bones and and that sort of thing you also get it with um it's quite common in female runners because their estrogen has has dipped usually because they're in a negative energy balance they can have like sort of stress factors and something like that mm-hmm. um but yeah the the estrogen consideration definitely makes it even more of a case for strength training for women because um, strength training improves your bone density makes your bones stronger as well as giving you more muscle mass um, which increases your metabolism which means you probably don't put on as much weight so if you wanted to start running at a later age then strength training should be even more of a consideration for you to make sure that you can can do it without injury and you can also you know stay mobile pretty much for the rest of your life because I think what usually happens with women is that they have those bone issues and then it kind of sort of leads to a negative decline of, Oh, I can't do that because of, Mm. I might get injured, Mm -hmm. you know, and then that usually leads to eighties, nineties, a hip break, which has a a really high mortality rate. And what we find is that when people move less, that just leads to less and less movement. 
Yeah. But yeah, so that that's the only thing I'd say for anyone starting a bit later, especially women who are peri or premenopausal, it's like absolutely start it, but make sure you 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 work on your flexibility and make sure you're training in the gym with weights in a meaningful way three times a week. I would okay. say. I always tell the story about how I'm always passed by 80 year olds and 70 year olds on a half marathon. <laughs> oh yeah. That's happened like, to me. I'm like, what? Yeah. Um <laughs> strollers. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But uh, okay. So one last question. When you think about your own journey and where you are now and what is one thing you would tell a woman that is at the start of her running journey uh, that you think would be most beneficial for her to hear? I would say, please don't focus on how many calories you're burning or any weight loss goals and think about how amazing what you're doing is. So for, for you, as you said, you know, you're doing a marathon to lose weight. A marathon is such an achievement for anyone, regardless of size, regardless of background, whether you've run since forever or you've only just started. It's, it's a huge achievement that not many people do. And you should really honor yourself for doing it rather than thinking, yeah, I trained for a marathon. It was really cool. I lost 10 pounds or I didn't lose any weight or, you know, I do it so I can eat this. That's just so not, not what it's about. So focus on enjoying your running and being proud of what you're doing rather than if it's changing your body composition or if it's, you know, I think that really takes the vibrancy out of running and can lead to a lot of people quitting because they do it for the purpose of losing weight or they do it for the purpose of getting faster. Mm -hmm. And it's like running is a, is a really joyful movement. It's, it's, we're wired to like doing it because we used to have to do it to survive. And you'll really, you'll really drift a long way away from that. If you make it about an outcome, like losing weight or doing a sub four marathon. And I've been there before, like doing things for an outcome goal rather than a process goal, Mm -hmm. which should be, you know, when you go out on a great run and the endorphins you get and how great and rejuvenated and different you feel, that should be the focus, not any weight loss or fast times. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You you just gave them to me when you were talking about it. Yeah, it, no, you're right. It's a journey, and it, it is. You have to embrace it, and it is a. It's I I can't even explain it. It's like no other. It, it's yeah. definitely a, a wonderful a thing to do, and a, and a great achievement uh, if you can do a marathon, half a marathon, or even a five k. I always tell everybody, you ran, you moved. You know, I always have the women woman who says, um, "I'm not a runner yet." I'm like you just ran, you are a runner. Yeah. So I I, put one foot in front of the other. That's it. You're a runner. Yeah. I love that. Well, like I said, I could talk to you for hours and and pick your brain because you have so much knowledge and I want to thank you so much for coming on. I know the listeners are going to totally love this. I really appreciate you being here with us. And uh, so, but before I finish, where can we find you? I know you are on social media, you have a website and I'll put the links on the episode notes, but if you could just tell people where you're at and you also have a podcast. Yes, I do. Um, so my company's called Endure Stronger and you can find us at endurestronger.com. Uh, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. All of the handles are Endure Stronger. And I have a personal Instagram account um, at Sam McIntosh. And um, I usually post nutrition advice on there and 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 that sort of thing but um in the coronavirus uh, pandemic and things like that 
like I posted an immunity support pack for my, but I've kind of gone a little quiet on there. I have a, I think as a coach, I always believe that you should take care of yourself first. And so I, I sort of withdrew from social media a little bit. Yeah, you can find me, uh, find us on there. We do, at the moment, uh, we're doing a free Pilates class every week oh. and um, on our Facebook Live page. So that'll be pretty cool. And the Endure Stronger podcast is on iTunes and Spotify. So um, we're on nearly 20 episodes now, which is wow. crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, I love it. Love it. Thanks again, Sam. And uh, thank you everyone for listening. And until next time, bye. <laughs>